Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. God calls us to confess our sins before him. Hebrews chapter 4 is our call to confession this morning. Hear God's word. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Thus far the reading of God's word. God tells us here that we need to enter his rest. If we don't, verse 11 tells us, we'll wind up disobeying God like Israel disobeyed when they refused to enter the promised land. And that was a rather obvious refusal and sin. Uh, But disobedience isn't always that public and obvious. We can look like we're following Christ, but really we're refusing the rest that only Christ offers us. We can fool others sometimes, but the Word of God discerns our thoughts and our intentions. We usually think of sin as breaking rules, and it does wind up there. But sin starts with refusing to trust God, to trust His Word, to enter His rest, the rest of Christ. He calls us to life and to that rest. We often, so often, try to live on our own. We try to find our own rest. Let's confess our sins and turn to Christ for that rest. I encourage you to kneel if you're able, and I'll pray our prayer of confession this morning. We turn in our Bibles now to John chapter 20. Decided to continue my John Gospel of John streak here. Ever since Good Friday, we've been in John 18 and 19. And then last Sunday on Resurrection Day, the first half of John 20. So today we will finish John 20. I'm going to start at verse 19 and read to the end of the chapter. Again, give attention to God's word. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, so I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, 
and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The grass withers, the flower fades, but this word of God stands forever. And God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've read your word, we pray for wisdom and understanding by your Holy Spirit. The same who inspired these words, you cause to illumine them in our minds and our hearts so that we might know you better, so that we might be changed in ourselves to be more conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus. We pray that you would cause this to happen as your word does not return void when it goes forth to your people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is a traditional lectionary text the week after Easter, John 20, as this happens uh, on that day, the Sunday after Easter. Uh, So the theme here is the resurrection life of Jesus, giving us life and peace and a mission. Those three things we'll consider today. Resurrection, giving us life and peace and a mission. So let's walk through this verse by verse, beginning in verse 19. Uh, We have uh, the disciples who are gathered. Uh, One aside here just to note, this is not just the 11 apostles most likely. This is the disciples, which is a much bigger group, I believe. The door is locked for fear of the Jews. We mentioned that last time. Uh, the, The harassed church must sometimes meet like this, but it's not the best way. A church ought to meet in worship open to the world. Uh, And that's important to remember. We must be if we are to be sent into the world. Uh, Very often, if you uh, drive past a a JW building, for example, very often the meeting places of cults like that, you will notice the windows are all bricked up. It's it's closed. They, They don't want people looking in. It's a very closed situation. Not so the church. We would prefer the world to see and to hear our proclamation. Psalm 96 is a good example of that. Proclaim and declare to the nations that God reigns. Uh, I remember uh, in a past church uh, when uh, my kids were younger, one of their assignments when we got to church and we were doing the setup was to make sure that all the window shades were open. So the kids would go around to all the window shades. We don't have that here. But, But we would open all the shades Uh, because of this very idea. We're not not a closed group. We're not hiding from people around us. The neighbors were on the front porch this morning as we walked in. They they know there's a church here, and that's a good thing. Anyway, uh, the, the, the doors were locked because of fear of the Jews. But Jesus comes, he stands among them, and he says, peace to you. I think it's three times in this passage, twice uh, in, on the first resurrection day, and then again the next week. It's always the first thing Jesus says to them, peace 
to you. Uh, Peace instead of rebuke. Think of that first, right? Jesus could have rebuked them for their unbelief that first Easter morning, for running away from him in in the garden a few nights earlier, right, When, when he was arrested. And they would have deserved that rebuke. But God does not treat us as our sins deserve. Like we sang in Psalm 103. Jesus gives them peace instead of a rebuke. He gives peace instead of fear. Uh, lay aside your fears of the world out there. You're, you're going to face trouble from the world, but you have a peace underneath. He says it twice. Peace be with you. For personal assurance first, I think, but then also uh, for mission. Uh, right? In verse 21. Peace to you as the Father has sent me. So there, there's various things we need peace for. Uh, one, for assurance of pardon of our sins, but also if we're hauled up before the magistrate or before the Sanhedrin like the apostles were, we're going to need a foundation of peace to be able to handle, handle that well. And that's what Jesus gives them. Peace instead of rebuke. Peace instead of fear. Peace instead of fighting. Right? Psalm 46, I, uh, we enjoy that verse. Be still and know that I am God. Right? We always forget the verse right before it, which says, God breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He, he makes you to be quiet and says, peace, be still and know that I am God. That when Jesus is born, the angels sing, peace on earth, when the Prince of Peace comes. A hallmark of a faithful church in Christ is its peaceful life together. Ephesians 4.3 says that part of our calling as Christians is to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We pursue peace. Uh, So uh, all of these uh, we can consider, as Jesus says, peace to you. And and then verse 21, he sends uh, the Spirit so that we can be sent. Here's where we left off from last week. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 22. So the Spirit is sent to us so that we can be sent. And just as the Spirit comes on Jesus at the beginning of his ministry in the Jordan, so he comes on the disciples at the beginning of their ministry. They are sent to do what Jesus did in a way. Not the atonement part, we know. But Jesus comes proclaiming the kingdom of God, calling on all men to repent of their sins. That's what uh, the apostles are sent to do as well. So you have here a symbolic Pentecost, right? By, by breathing out on the disciples. It's a foretaste or a foreshadowing of that great day 50 days later. So here again, you have a holiday mashup, and it's the, the apostle John doing it, right? He puts Pentecost on the same day as Easter. Here's, here, receive the Holy Spirit. They're connected. Uh, our mission is to testify that Jesus is risen. And when you go through the the book of Acts, that's what the apostles do. In Acts 2, in Acts 3, in Acts 4, Acts 5, every one of those chapters, you have a a sample sermon of the apostles uh, proclaiming, testifying to the resurrection of Jesus and getting in trouble for it. But they have peace with them. So they're following the resurrection pattern. If we, if we go to Acts 5 a second, you see that. Uh, they're released from prison. That's a resurrection theme, by the way. Don't, don't jump over that too much, right? That's often how the resurrection is portrayed in the Old Testament. Uh, Christ uh, uh, bursts the bars of death, right? It's a jailbreak of sorts from Hades. 
Jesus is released from death, from hell, from any uh, uh, um, assumed condemnation. He is shown to be free, innocent, vindicated, alive. Uh, So the apostles see themselves as witnesses to that right from the start. And so it starts happening to them. They're released from prison, just like Jesus was. They saw Jesus in the upper room alive on Easter. And and, and at the end of their uh, uh, speech to the Sanhedrin, at the end of Acts 5, uh, they don't forget to mention the Holy Spirit, right? Which was given to them at that time. So there's this pattern here from resurrection to the work of mission and testifying to Christ, and then being in trouble in the world for that mission, and then back to resurrection. And and there's a pattern there. So we need to consider that. Uh, Consider the apostles in prison before uh, the the angel comes and releases them. Uh, How often are we discouraged in our work and in our mission? Uh, We aren't often put in this situation, but our brothers and sisters around the world are uh, thrown in jail for it. Right? Are we ever troubled by, by the ineffectiveness of our work? Uh, Ecclesiastes is very realistic about this. It's a, it's a helpful book to read. Uh, I have to leave all my labor to someone who comes after me, and who knows if he'll be wise or foolish with, with what I leave him? Who knows? What do I get for all of our work without the blessing of God? You wonder if you're getting anything meaningful done right? That you see a new boss come through and completely undo what you've done. Or your job ends after several years and you look back and you wonder, did I make any impact at all? This is a pressing problem and it's not confined to the workplace, right? What about parenting? You pour hours and hours into diapers and meals and prayer and conversation and teaching, persuading and pleading. And now maybe they've gone a different way. Or worse, they won't even talk to you anymore. It's discouraging. It's a grievous affliction of life to pour your heart and your soul into your calling, your vocation, and to feel like it's going nowhere. That happens to some of us worse than others. But we need each other to see better what we are getting done. It's very important that we need faith in a resurrection Lord to believe that all of our labor, all of our mission of testimony to the risen Lord However inadequate, he will redeem by his grace and resurrection life. We read it last week, the the last verse of the great resurrection chapter, right? 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, I'm always amazed by that. There's great theology there, right? The sting of death is gone. Where is your uh, sting, O grave? Uh, the, The trumpet shall sound, will be raised incorruptible, glorious. And you know what the last verse is? We read it last week, you know it. Your labor, the very last phrase, sentence. So because of all this, remember, your labor is not in vain. That's one of the payoffs of the resurrection. Even though we don't see it here. So when the sending of Christ uh, winds us up in trouble, even in jail like the apostles, we remember that the resurrection has overcome anything man can do to us here. Uh, one of my uh, favorite musicians these days is Andrew Peterson. He wrote a, a song called Rise Up. He says, Every stone that makes you stumble and cuts you when you fall, every serpent here that strikes your heel to curse you when you crawl, the king of love one day will crush them all. Every sad seduction and every clever lie, every word that woos and wounds the pilgrim children of the sky, 
the king of love will break them by and by. And you will rise up in the end. It's glorious hope that we have founded in the resurrection. So we're a sent people. We're on a mission that is difficult, yes, but by God's grace and power, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So the resurrection, it brings about a new creation, a new people of God. A little theology here that God breathes life into Adam at the beginning, right? And so Jesus breathes new life into us when we were spiritually dead. He blows fresh air on our downcast, our dried up souls. The, the dry bones in the valley of, uh, of Ezekiel, 37, right? That the prophesy to the breath and say, come and breathe on these slain. And they rise up. Uh, in Narnia, the, the, uh, Lewis does a parallel a metaphor with that. When he breathes on the stone statues and they come back to life, right? Think of all that as you think of Jesus in the upper room. Uh, resurrection day, evening. Breathing on the apostles. Giving them his Holy Spirit. When the Spirit comes upon us, the point is not to have an emotional experience in the spirit it's to receive life and ability and and boldness enough to be witnesses to christ's resurrection that's what the bible says in acts so uh, that's what uh, jesus tells them here as they receive the spirit uh, there's also that's also by the way my um remez for the day right Bre jesus breathing on the apostles there's a hint there back to the garden Back to Jesus, back to the Lord, breathing life into Adam. It's a rebirth, a new creation that's going on. And then verse 23 always stumps us a bit, right? If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. What is this all about? Well, forgiveness of sins is central to why Jesus was sent, why we are sent, right? So I think there's, there's two levels here. It seems like Jesus uh, turns to address the apostles, uh, and Jesus is speaking of their using the keys of the kingdom to open and close the kingdom in preaching uh, the gospel and in church discipline. That's some Heidelberg Catechism language there. That's how uh, the Catechism interprets this. Uh, the church's calling is to proclaim the gospel so that people will repent and receive forgiveness. The church also has, to, has a calling to declare that God withholds his forgiveness where people live in unrepentant sin, where they don't trust Christ for forgiveness. We need to preach the whole counsel of God, and part of that is to say, if you're not trusting Christ, if you're not following him, you're headed for hell. You're, the kingdom of God is closed to you. So that's, I think, what uh, Jesus is saying here. Uh, we are to open the doors of the kingdom, offer the gospel to all. Uh, to those that we see obviously are rejecting it, we close the doors of the kingdom. Another level of this is for every disciple of Jesus. On an individual level, we're called to forgive uh, our debtors, as, as uh, Jesus calls us to in the Lord's Prayer. The church together is called to be a forgiving community, bearing patiently the faults of others, helping to restore them gently. Jesus here, I don't think Jesus is giving his apostles or any earthly leaders the power to forgive sins on their own, like a Roman absolution. The church doesn't mediate grace to man like that. But we do, as the church, call all nations to repent of their sins. We declare God's grace to be at work 
when we see repentance. Uh, the salvation Jesus accomplished on the cross, God decreed from all eternity for his elect to be completely effective. Right? And we believe that, and that's part of our assurance. Here, in verse 23, we see the visible church's mission in history. We see people converted, repent. We see them feel their guilt before God. Trust Christ for forgiveness. That's what we see in, in the whole book of Acts. Uh, so the Spirit, through the church, applies the redemption of Christ to people. That's what is going on here. So that's that first uh, resurrection evening. And then verse 24, Thomas was not with them when Jesus came. I sometimes make the joke, it's, it's not exactly founded in logic, so take this with a lighthearted grain of salt. But sometimes I like to look to this verse and say, careful you don't miss church, because you never know what's going to happen. Right? Look what Thomas missed that first Sunday. Don't miss church. Well, Thomas misses, he wasn't there that time. Maybe, maybe he had a reason, whatever. But the disciples say to him, we've seen the Lord. And he won't believe. And then verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside. And this time Thomas is there. Ah, So the disciples are saying to Thomas, we've seen the Lord. And I, I get the sense that they're saying that for a whole week. And for a whole week, Thomas is shaking his head. I don't believe you. Got to see it myself. They're eager to cheer Thomas, to encourage him. They're glad when they see the Lord. But he's still... Uh -uh. And they don't want that for him. It's 1 John 1, verse 4. We write these things so that your joy may be full. But he's not there yet. He need not be so downcast, but he stubbornly refuses. Thomas comes to believe like the other disciples, by seeing, right? They, they doubted, all the disciples, they doubted Mary on resurrection morning, just as Thomas doubted them all week. Uh, one commentator likes to point out that this is hope that's quickly rising, and then fear punches it down. And that's sometimes our emotional lives, Right? Hope quickly rises, but, but our fear fights it, punches it down. Doesn't that ring true sometimes? It isn't so much uh, some intellectual doubt as a willful resistance to hope. Because you don't want your hopes dashed like they have so often been. That's Thomas. All the disciples had that at first. They didn't believe when the women came breathless from the tomb. Jesus had to eat something to convince them he was real, the Gospel of Luke tells us. Uh, here in John, uh, they aren't glad until they see the scars. Uh, there's a Scottish Puritan, George Hutchison, who wrote on this. He said, Unbelief is strangely rooted in the hearts of all men, even of godly men and disciples. Well, this is kind of counterintuitive, because we always we assume disciples, followers of Jesus, are believers. Right? But here you have a, a dyed-in-the-wool Scottish Puritan who says, unbelief is strangely rooted in believers. <laughs> and there's, there's a paradoxical truth to that. Every believer wonders from time to time if the Christian faith is true. And this is something we need to face head-on and be realistic about. If we don't address that, it, it, it will grow, the doubts will grow. How can we know for sure? Right? 
Well, for now, these disciples, they should have believed more quickly. We know that. I'll come back to that in a minute. Jesus had told them this was going to happen. He had raised people from the dead before their eyes before. They should have believed, but they didn't. And Jesus doesn't condemn Thomas, just like he didn't rebuke the other disciples. He gently corrects. He gives him exactly what he asked for, to believe. You ever notice that, by the way, verse 25 and 27? It's almost the exact same words, right? Jesus isn't there physically when Thomas says, unless I put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, right? And then Jesus shows up a few days later. He says to Thomas, hey, put your finger in my side. He uses the same language. It's like Jesus was there, actually. He heard Thomas when he said, I will not believe. Jesus was there. And Thomas realizes that. It's part of the, the punch, I think. That Jesus is there whenever we, whenever we speak rash words, whenever we refuse to believe. Well, uh, uh, J.C. Ryle also, I've been looking at some of the older Puritans this week, he, he points out how tiresome and provoking Thomas must have been, right? To the rest of the disciples all week long. Think if you've just seen Jesus alive on Easter morning, for the, and then the, whole, that, the joy of that week, and, and there's Thomas with you the whole time saying, uh-uh, nope, don't believe you. Ah, that, that must have been just tiresome and provoking, Ryle said. And, and Ryle says, Jesus doesn't reject Thomas. He doesn't dismiss him. He doesn't excommunicate him. Let us never set down men in a low place as godless and graceless because their faith is feeble, because their love is cold. Remember the case of Thomas and be pitiful and of tender mercy. Our Lord has many weak children in his family, Ryle says. Many dull pupils in his school. Many raw soldiers in his army. Many lame sheep in his flock. Yet he bears with them all and casts none away. Happy is the Christian who's learned to deal likewise with his brethren. Fascinating way to consider it. When we, when we get zealous for the truth, for holiness, for righteousness, we can often become harsh with our uh, uh, faltering and stumbling brothers and sisters. What do you do when you have a Thomas in your midst, an ornery contrarian who gives no credence to the testimony or view of others? What do you do when you realize that you are that Thomas? It can be hard to trust others after you go through a lot of ugliness, like the disciples went through at the crucifixion of Jesus. Thomas just couldn't do it. So then, what do you do? Well, his friends wait, and they let God work. That's what the apostles do. They look together to the hands and the side of Jesus. They consider his scars. Paul did that too, by the way, in uh, the end of Galatians. Paul says, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. He was flogged many times. His back bore the scars. And I think it's something to consider. We should consider each other's scars more before we try to assert our opinions. I don't know how those disciples handled Thomas for that week, but that's something to consider. Consider his scars. Well, after eight days, and this counts Easter Sunday as day one, by the way, so the eighth day is the next Sunday. Uh, some Bible versions even say a week later. 
So that's fascinating in itself, right? Jesus sanctifies Sunday by appearing to the disciples on the first two Sundays, right? Resurrection morning at the tomb, Mary and Peter and John, then in the evening, and then the next Sunday. Jesus, it seems, wasn't with the disciples every day those 40 days. Uh, he, he's, uh, he's setting up a pattern of meeting with Jesus on Sundays. After eight days, uh, then uh, Jesus appears. And we've considered that. Thomas, uh, reach your hand in here. Put your finger here. It's something important to remember. The resurrection body Jesus has, that we will have, it's not this wispy thing. Right? Sometimes we get that idea that it's going to be kind of ethereal. Well, you can pass through doors, right? Well, maybe. We're not sure how all that's going to work. But Thomas could put his finger on and in the scars. It's, it's a body, body, a resurrection body. So Thomas, his, his response is, My Lord and my God, verse 28. Some consider it the climax of the whole Gospel of John. A key way that Jesus is glorified by the church is proclaiming him to be Lord and God. John began his gospel by saying the word was with God and the word was God. Right? And he ends it here. When the, the Lystrans in Acts, they, tell, they call Paul and Silas gods. And Paul and Silas stop them. They run into the midst and say, no, 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 no. We're people just like you. Right? Or John and Daniel, they fall down to worship an angel that appears to them. And the angel stops them. Don't do that. And when Thomas calls Jesus God, there is no rebuke, there is no correction. It's true. Jesus says, now you believe. Wow. There, if you're looking for an assertion of the deity of Christ in Scripture, this is an obvious one. Verse 29, what else does Jesus say? Because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is more a comment to the reader, I think, than it is a rebuke to Thomas. It's almost like Jesus turns from Thomas and he looks out of the camera frame, right? There's a, I think it was Ferris Bueller, the movie, that first did that. I could be wrong on that exact thing, but there was this one point in movie-making history where all of a sudden somebody had the idea to have, have the characters in the movie actually look right at the camera and talk to the viewer. And people were like, whoa, that's new. I think it was Ferris Bueller. I could be wrong. But that, that's startling. And that's what John does right here. If we don't see it in verse 29, you see it more obviously in verse 30, right? He starts talking directly to the reader. These are written that you, reader, may believe. Right? The point isn't so much to show the weak faith of, of Thomas, but to reassure, to bless future believers who never see Jesus physically in this life. And that's us. John travels uh, extensively after the resurrection. Many believe he was in uh, Turkey, in Ephesus, uh, in places like that when he wrote this gospel. Ministering, telling people about Jesus who've never seen him who live three countries away. That's why he writes this way. You've never seen him, but blessed are you if you believe. And again, think about this very realistically. It's just, uh, um, you know, street level, what's going on? What's real in life? Isn't it strange 
that we so shape our lives around Jesus, whom we've never seen. John's admitting, that's a little strange, isn't it? He's really realistic about this. We make such grandiose claims about Jesus being our King, our Lord, our literal Savior, but we've never seen him. And that raises nagging doubts for some. But Jesus gave us this word to deal with those doubts. And you see how that deals with that head on. So we can know what we believe is really true. And that's the last two verses there are great. Good memorization verses, by the way, parents, for, for kids, or for you too. Verse 30 and 31. This means you, the reader of this book. We don't need to see Jesus, is John's point. We don't need an exhaustive documentary of everything Jesus did just to make sure. We have enough written here to believe. And this means that we are in a different place than Thomas, in a sense. We have no right to demand that Jesus show himself physically before we believe. We have this inspired, infallible cloud of witnesses to the truth. For Thomas and the other disciples, it kind of made sense that that for Jesus to show himself, they had seen him before, been with him for three years. Uh, That that made a lot of sense for them to be the, the first witnesses to Christ's resurrection. But for us, we need not see. Nothing is more certain than the Bible's testimony of the risen Lord Jesus. Brings us back to that question, how can we know for sure? We can know for sure because of the history of this book. Consider history itself. Like, we don't doubt that George Washington was the first president of our country, do we? Even though we've never seen him. Why don't we doubt that? The history's reliable enough to believe it. That's why. God's word and the history of this book and the text transmission of this book is far more sure than the history of George Washington's existence. Why don't we believe? What do you think of that crackpot, by the way, who denies George Washington's existence? (laughs) Or or that there was an actual moon landing, right? Or or the Holocaust deniers out there, right? Pretty crazy. That isn't the kind of faith Thomas has or that Jesus calls you to have. Sure, you haven't been to Auschwitz yourself, but the history is reliable, right? Faith is not a leap against all reason. We don't believe in Jesus in spite of opposing evidence. The evidence all points to his resurrection. Anyway, I'm getting off on the apologetic point here of the resurrection in Eastertide. Uh, the intent of Scripture is for Jesus, us to see Jesus for who he is. Uh, that's the point there, to give us faith and life. Uh, Jesus says that in John 5:39 too, right? Uh, These are they which speak of me. And again, it fits well with the, first, the beginning of John's first letter. What we've seen, what we've handled, what we've decla- that's what we declare to you so that you will have fellowship with God, with us, so that you will have joy. This is the message. The resurrection life of Christ gives us life, gives us peace, gives us a mission. We can trust it, and it brings us joy in the end when we rise up. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us uh, such peace and assurance in your word. Forgive us when we're slow to believe, like the apostles, like Thomas. Thank you for your patience with us. 
Help us, Lord, to learn and to grow in the faith in ways that please and honor you. Help us to trust your work in ourselves, that when we wish uh, troubles would disappear faster, when we wish we would know more sooner, when we, we pray, Lord, that you would show us wisdom, uh, help us to know how, we are, uh, how you're calling us to grow and to change. We trust your word and the leading of your spirit in all of this. And Lord, we continue to come before you in worship in this manner because we know week by week that we need your grace. We need your word. We need the fellowship of other believers as we seek to follow you. And so we pray in the name of Jesus, the ever-living word, and we sing as he taught us to for our communion exhortation. The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with the blessings of goodness. You set a crown of pure gold upon his head. He asked life from you, and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you have placed upon him, for you have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. The presence of Jesus at his table is a precious truth to his people. It was in the eating of food that the disciples in the upper room on Easter evening knew and were glad that Jesus was really with them. It was in the blessing and breaking and giving of the bread that the Emmaus Road disciples recognized him. The question for us is whether we will realize that he is here. It is possible to breeze through week by week and not think much about this. Do you believe Jesus is alive? Do you realize that that means life for you and that there's no life without the resurrection? Is he your Lord and your God? then Jesus gives you a seat here at his table. Enjoy communion and fellowship with him. Receive the bread and wine and rest on Christ alone for salvation today. We invite you to the Lord's table, all those who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. By eating the bread with us and drinking the wine, you're acknowledging that you are a sinner except without hope except in God's sovereign mercy, that you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. Come and welcome to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I dot com. Again, thank you and blessings.